Go ahead and get your pew Bibles out, please, to the book of Leviticus. Or I guess you can get your Bibles out, and if you don't have a Bible, you can get your pew Bible out. And I guess since my Bible's not up here, we have a Bible thief in the building, I too will use a pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to take that pew Bible home with you. Keep it, use it. Read it. Let me tell you in advance, uh, the sermon, or excuse me, the service was shorter this morning by design because the sermon is going to be a little long. Not a lot long. Don't worry. It's going to be a little long. Y'all with me? Yeah. Okay. There, hey, there it is. I need more of that action over there. So we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 23. You should know, friends, that God has built our world with a kind of rhythm to it. You can see this rhythm, for example, in nature, when you look at the changing of the seasons. And even if you live in other climates that aren't quite as neatly divided into four distinct seasons as ours, you can still see a rhythm there. You know, there's more rain and less rain, and there's more snow and less greenery and more greenery and less snow, that kind of thing. Not only does nature have a rhythm, but human beings, individuals, tend to have their own unique rhythms. You know, some people just cannot be productive in the morning. They're like a flower that just begins to open around new time and then fully comes to blossom when some of us are going to bed. Others of us tend to rise and shine and rock and roll, and then we just sort of fade and wilt as the day goes on. Now, you can widen out your lens a little bit from individuals to societies, and even there you can see that different societies tend to have unique flows and cadences to their lives. So in tropical regions, for example, uh, work usually begins before the sun rises, and then it pauses in the afternoon for a nap, a siesta, and then it begins to pick back up when dusk comes around, and then it stops right before maybe 8 or 9 p.m. when people go to bed really early. The rhythms of life tend to look very different in more developed societies where electricity and air conditioning and heating mean that the clock does not rule, excuse me, it means that the clock does rule the rhythm of our lives more than Mother Nature. And all of this means, of course, that as Americans living in the 21st century, we have a unique rhythm to our lives. So my question for you in this morning's sermon as we begin is, does God care about the rhythm of our lives? Well, I think our text this morning might lead you to believe that he does. In this morning's text, I think we see that God, as he's calling his holy people Israel to holiness, he wanted their lives to have a distinct rhythm, a holy rhythm, you might say. He didn't want them to just let time slip away from them, passing the days away in a malaise of drudgery and debauchery. No, he wanted their lives to be punctuated with purpose. He wanted them to have a moral rhythm, a work and rest rhythm, a worship rhythm, and so on. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let me pray real quick, real quick, and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here, for some of us despite impossible circumstances. 
Father, we pray that you'll help us to have hearts that are attuned to you, hearts that are happy and hungry to hear your voice. I pray that you'll use me, Lord. Who am I that you would speak through me? No one. But your son, Jesus Christ, is the mighty Lord of the universe, and his word will always accomplish that for which you have purposed it. So do your people good this morning, God. In your son's name we do pray. Amen. Okay, I've got three points for you this morning, but before, note takers, we jump into that, let me just give you a brief outline of these seven holy days that are given to us in chapter 23. There are seven holy days. So if you look, first of all, in in verse 4, there you have the Passover, okay? Now that, now I'm, I'm, passing over. Oh, man, that was brutal. I'm passing over the Sabbath that's actually at the very beginning of the chapter. I'm jumping right. We're going to talk about that later, but the Passover in verse 4, that, uh, that happened in the month of March on the 14th of the first month, month of the year for the Israelites, and the first month of the year for them was what we would consider the month of March. And you can see that detailed in chapters 12 and 13 of Exodus. So if you want to go back and study the Passover, you can do that in chapters 12 and 13 of Exodus. This is, of course, the night that the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt right before the God of the Bible rescued his people. And it was nothing but the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites that saved their firstborn from the wrath of the angel of the Lord. And that's what the Passover feast was supposed to celebrate. Then in verse 6, you have the feast of unleavened bread. This would happen the next day after the, after the feast of the Passover. It happened on the 15th, on the Sabbath. Okay, this, this feast of the unleavened bread, it's supposed to, you know, you, you eat bread that doesn't have leaven in it because you're in a hurry. And if you're in a hurry, you don't put yeast in the bread because yeast, it takes time for the bread to rise with the yeast. And so God said, there's no time, you have to go. I'm, I'm rescuing you right now, so don't put any yeast in your bread. That's what that's supposed to remind the Israelites of. Then you have the Feast of First Fruits. You see that in verse 9. This happened on the 16th day of the same month. So you notice a lot of these are back to back to back, 14th, 15th, 16th. And this was uh, as the Israelites would begin their harvest. It was a sort of preemptory thanksgiving and blessing, saying, Lord, we know that you're going to take care of us as we begin this harvest season. Then you have the Feast of Weeks later on in the chapter. That's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. This would happen at the end of harvest. So you would begin the harvest with the Feast of the First Fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks would come after that at the end of the harvest, and it was just another dedication time, a Thanksgiving time. You would say, oh, you know, we, we thanked you in advance, and now look, you did exactly what we praised you for, so thank you again. Then, in verse 23, you have the Feast of Trumpets. It's really all about the trumpets. It's right there in the name. It's, it's a, t- a day where trumpets would be blasted in Israel, and that's when you're trying to let everyone know that the seventh month has begun, which doesn't really mean much to us, but for the Israelites, the number seven had a lot of significance, and this was a very important month, and so they would go out and they would blow the trumpets, and it would be a very big deal. Okay, then on that same month, You have the Day of Atonement. You see this in verse 27, okay? This is on the 10th day of the 7th month. Now, if 
If you weren't here when we preached through it, you can go back and listen to my sermon on Leviticus chapter 16. We preached a whole day about the Day of Atonement, uh, excuse me, a whole sermon about the Day of Atonement, but basically this is when Israel would come face to face with their sin and God would have them offer up sacrifices for their sins, to atone for their sins. And then finally, the seventh holy day, the Feast of Booths. This would happen on the 15th day, also of the seventh month. And uh, this is supposed to be a time when the Israelites would uh, live in tents or booths for seven days, even when they got to the promised land, even if they had houses, get out the tents, put up the tents, live in the tents. It's going to be a week-long camping time. But, but really, this was supposed to be a, a feast to remind the Israelites that they were sojourners, okay, that they didn't have a permanent home, that they were exiles. Now, these feasts and holy days that I've just outlined for you here in chapter 23, I would encourage you to go back and read about them more this afternoon or maybe in your devotionals this week. Just read all of chapter 23, see what else you can get there. Uh, But these feasts that I've just outlined for you, they functioned as the liturgical calendar of the Old Testament or the worship calendar for the Old Testament people of God. And we're going to be looking at some of the aspects of this calendar in this morning's sermon. So I've got three points for you, note takers. Here's your time. Point number one, feasting and fasting. I didn't even have to make that alliteration up. It's just right there, feasting and fasting. Number two, resting. Number three, worshiping. If you didn't get them, I'll give them to you again on the way through. So point number one, feasting and fasting. You can see what this chapter is all about if you look at the bookends of the chapter. So if you look at chapter 23, verse 1, you'll see the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord. Then you can flip on over and look at verse 44. Thus, Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. The chapter is all about feasting. But what are the significance? What is the significance of these feasts? Well, we kind of looked at each one of them in turn just now when I gave you uh, a broad overview. One of the ones that I want to I highlight for you just for one second is the very last feast, the, the Feast of Booths that came at the end of the seventh month of the year. Uh, look at verse 40 with me. It says, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees and buffs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in the booths that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this, this feast of booths was really uh, seven to eight days of straight party and celebration. That was the design. It was meant to be the kind of big end-of-the-year blowout, a time for God's people to celebrate all of God's grace and all of God's good provision. It feels a little out of place 
in the book of Leviticus. I mean, the book of Leviticus, if you've been with us, has thus far felt heavy, dark, severe. There's been a lot of blood and sacrifice and punishing of sins, and even some of the punishing of sins have been capital punishments and cutting off of the unholy and all of that stuff. But I think it would be a mistake to view the book of Leviticus as nothing more than a dark and dreary book from a gloomy and angry God. I don't think that's what this is, friends. I think one of the things that we learn from this chapter in general, and from the Feast of Booths in particular, is that God wants his people to be full of joy. He wants them to be a joyful, celebratory, festive people, so much so that as God is building the rhythm of their lives, he's giving them appointed feasts, appointed times of celebration. You know, when you read the book of Genesis and you see that God forbids Adam and Eve from partaking of one tree, you tend to forget that he gave them literally every other tree to partake of for their joy. Genesis 1.29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. Amen. When we see God's condemnation of sexual sin in the book of Leviticus, we tend to think of God as an old prude. We tend to think of him as someone who doesn't want us to know any sort of physical pleasure with our bodies. But God's first command for us his people, was that we would be fruitful and multiply. And not just for strictly utilitarian purposes either. Friends, you need to know that God is not a curmudgeon. He doesn't resent our happiness on this earth. He's not calling us out of the world and out of our sins only to have us sit around in a holy huddle throwing off an Eeyore vibe. Friends, God has created us to know joy. And it's nothing but our sin and our rebellion that has ruined that joy and put us in a position to be judged by God. It's often said that the God of the Old Testament is very dark and gloomy. People tend to view the God of the Old Testament as being angry. But then in the, in the New Testament, you see Jesus comes and he's the happy version of God. He's, he's God who's put a smile on his face. And this thing is usually said by people who just don't have a very good understanding of their Bibles. Jesus talked more about hell and wrath than anyone else in the Bible. And then right here at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, we have a whole chapter where God is telling his people to punctuate their lives with joy and celebration. Amen. Now, when you look at the Hebrew word for feasting, you'll find that it means exactly what it means in English. Okay? It means getting together with friends and family and eating a lot of really good food, having a really good time, just having a big celebration. Like mm. Deacon, Steve, Brother Grant, maybe a little help here. Okay, guys? Yeah. Spencer's not here. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's important to remember that the heart of feasting is not the food itself, right? The heart of feasting is the God who has provided the food for us. Feasting is a time to rest, 
from the relentless toil of life in this fallen world, and it's also a time to enjoy all of God's many blessings, like food and friends and family. And friends, when we feast, we are quite literally full of God's blessing. Now, we have to be careful here. You have to remember that not all feasting is good. We have to remember that not all feasting is godly. For example, God's people should not feast like hedonists. Now, you may be thinking, well, Sean, what is a hedonist? Or maybe you listen to a lot of John Piper and you're thinking, well, Sean, I know what a hedonist is. Well, outside of the small world of people who read John Piper and talk about Christian hedonism, historically, hedonism has just meant you live for carnal pleasure. You just live for pleasure and for pleasure alone. You know, it's the eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? This is the kind of thing that Paul talks about in Philippians 3 when he says, their God is their belly. That's not how we feast as God's people, brothers and sisters. No, there should be something different about us. Our feasting is an act of worship, not indulgence. Our feasting is not me-oriented. Our feasting is other-oriented, you know, a hedonist, he feasts to, to, to indulge in as much food and drink as he can possibly fit into his mortal body. But God's people feast as a celebration of God's good provision. And we do a whole bunch of other really good stuff. It's difficult for us to appreciate the value of feasting in a society like ours, where every meal we eat could be considered a feast. You know, every time we sit down, we just stuff it in, full to the brim. Because of that, we tend to think about fasting as a spiritual discipline more than feasting. And maybe that's right. Maybe that's good for us. Perhaps we would appreciate feasting more if we committed ourselves to more times of fasting. Now, let me tell you... uh, at the outset of this little portion of the sermon, I am not really the guy to preach to you about fasting, okay? Uh, I've done it on multiple occasions, but I'm not really the guy to talk to you about fasting, okay? That's not like the, the prominent spiritual discipline in my life. But I do think that in this morning's text, we see that there should be a rhythm of fasting built into our lives, You see this in the language of affliction. Look at verses 27 through 32. Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of the atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Now this language of affliction, we saw already in Leviticus uh, 16, that that's the language of fasting. It's not whipping yourself or cutting yourself with stones. You remember later Jesus came and he interacted with a man who was cutting himself with stones and he told him to stop and he healed him and he got rid of the demons that were causing this. This language of affliction is, it's the language of lament. And one of the things that you do when you're lamenting as you're looking sin in your face, in in the face, is, is you fast. And that's what's happening here in the Day of Atonement. I think what's very significant for us to see here in this chapter is that as we, as we read through these feasts and we see that many of them are connected sequentially, we see that the Day of Atonement rolls right into the Feast of Booths. The Day of Lamenting and Fasting 
and brokenness and affliction rolls right into the week of celebration and praise and feasting and thanksgiving. There's a pattern here that you see all throughout the rest of the Bible. It's the same pattern that you see in the gospel. And the pattern is that you have to understand the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. This means that you you probably have to fast a little before you feast. You have to repent before you can receive the blessings of salvation. Right? You have to suffer with Christ in order to reign with him. You have to die in order to live. Brothers and sisters, you should know that Christianity is not a curmudgeonly faith. Christianity is festive and it's celebratory in its very nature, but fasting should usually precede feasting. Now, these feasts, like everything else under the law, they were just a shadow of the ultimate things to come. Well, what, what was the shadow? What is the ultimate thing to come that these feasts were shadowing? Well, Jesus talks about it in his ministry. In Matthew 22, which we read this morning, he talks about a big forever party up in the sky, a wedding feast. In the parable of the prodigal son, once again, we have heaven pictured as a big party, a celebration. In Revelation 19, 6 through 9, which we read as the introduction to this morning's sermon, we see that a multitude of God's people have been gathered around the lamb who has been slain in a massive feast. I wonder if you've ever thought about heaven along those lines. It's a time where all of God's people are going to gather around God's table and enjoy God's good food and fellowship forever and ever and ever. Like when you have friends and family over for a barbecue that you're just having such a good time, nobody wants to go home. Well, that's what heaven is going to be like, but infinitely better and forever. I wonder if you've ever even thought about evangelism along these lines. You know, while it's true that evangelism should include the bad news of the gospel, it must include the bad news of the gospel. It also absolutely must include the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that God is inviting everyone into his forever feast. The Great Commission is, in one sense, an invitation to a cosmic celebration. Let me give you one more thing on feasting before we move on to point two. Uh, if you have been a visitor with us for some time, or if you're a member of this church, you probably noticed that uh, we're really big on like taking people out to eat or having people over in our homes like Tim and Megan do so well, uh, Grant and Allison, and the examples can be multiplied. We are big on having meals together in this church, and there are a few reasons for that. Uh, some are practical, right? Like one practical reason is just because people's lives are really busy and sometimes it's hard to make time for each other, but we all have to eat. So we just, you know, hey, let's have lunch. Let's have breakfast. But there's also a theological reason why eating together is such a big part of our life together in this church. And it's because of what we learn here in Leviticus 23, that big tables full of good food and church members all around is a foretaste of what heaven will be like. I want us as a church to always be just getting those little tastes of heaven before we get there so that we can pursue heaven with all of our strength and all of our might. 
This is why I still value silly things that seem outdated to, you know, cool, modern, hip churches like the potluck that we had before the coronavirus shut everything down and changed our lives forever. No, uh, which we will get back to, um, where after service on Sunday, we would go in and have a big potluck together, and then we would come back in and have our members meeting, you know, once every two months. I value that potluck because regardless of whether or not that pot roast was a little dry or your favorite dish was there or they ran out of pizza before you could get a slice, that potluck is a little picture of heaven. And it's beautiful. So in the spirit, brothers and sisters, of feasting with the saints, I want to encourage all the members of this church to be ready to open up your homes or fire up the grill, order takeout if you have to, you know, look up, look up recipes for casseroles. Do people still make casseroles? You know? If you're like me and my wife, you know, Amber's just like, listen, I cannot possibly host as many people as you want to have dinner with. Then we just have it built into our budget for us to take people out. But I want to encourage every member of our church to make feasting with the saints a regular part of your life in the local church so that you can picture the gospel to the church members and to the world. Amen? Okay, point number two, rest. Let me get right to it. Work is good. God gave it to us as a gift. Sin ruined work. And so now it doesn't feel very much like a gift. You remember how God cursed work in Genesis 3? He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. He doesn't say anything about like an alarm clock slamming you into reality at 4.30 in the morning. But I think that that's right in line with what the curse is here, okay? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes goes on to elaborate on this curse of work a little bit more. And there the author talks about work as a constant toil. And he says it feels like you're just kind of chasing after the wind. And yet God is kind to us. God doesn't want us to only and always know this toil, this suffering and work in this fallen world. He he wants us to have reprieve from the drudgery. And so he gives us rest. In today's verses, we see that God gives his people a holy rhythm of work and rest to punctuate their lives in this fallen world. So you can see one expression of that in a weekly rhythm. Look at verse 3, chapter 23, verse 3. It says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath day to the Lord and all your dwelling places. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that weekly Sabbath thing in a little bit. You should also know that this work-rest rhythm is not just on a weekly basis here for the Old Covenant people of God. God gives them a work-rest ratio throughout the entire year. So you see throughout the rest of this chapter that for each one of these holy days, there is an accompanied command to rest. You can see it in verse 24. Look there with me. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month and on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. You can see it again in verse 39. Flip over there. 
On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And we could just go on and on and on, okay? Uh, I know a lot of ambitious people that live by the slogan, no days off. You ever heard that before? When I was in the music industry, I used to hear about team no sleep, you know, team no sleep. And the idea there is that there's just so much work to do. You got to hustle and grind that there's just no time for rest. Sleep is a cousin of death and you can, you know, you can sleep when you die. Now, this is not unique to musicians or to our modern world. Human beings have always felt like they had to push it to the red line constantly in order to survive and thrive in this fallen world. It's true that human beings can also be the opposite. They can be lazier than an old porch cat. I'm not really sure I know what that means, but I'm trying to embrace the fact that I live in Alabama and, you know, really connect with the people here. While that's true, it's also true that many of us feel like we have to hustle and grind from sunup to sundown seven days a week, 365 days a year in order to get by. Now, friends, ambition is not an inherently bad thing. Hard work is not a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. But this nonstop hustle and grind mindset can reveal within us a sinful disposition that says, God, I don't trust you enough to take a break. God, I don't trust you enough with my business or with this or with that enough to rest, even when I know I need it. Jesus talks about this tendency in Matthew chapter 6. He talks about those who are anxious about what they're going to eat and what they're going to drink and what they're going to wear. And he says, listen, the reason why you're anxious about these things is because you don't know God. Right? You should know better. You should know that your Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask Him. And you should trust Him that He's going to give you what you need. But then He concludes His lesson like this. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. I feel like if this was like a biblical counseling class in seminary, like Jesus would fail. It's a very Bob Newhart kind of thing, you know, just stop it, right? Just stop doing that. Jesus is saying, don't be anxious, just stop. Okay, Jesus, but how do I fight my anxiety? Well, one simple way is practice. And that's one thing that rest does for the people of God. It gives us an opportunity to practice trusting in God. One day a week, several weeks throughout the year, God calls on us to hand him over the reins of our lives and say, I trust you enough to rest today. I trust you so much, God. I know that you love me. I know that you're going to care for me so much that I'll rest today and I trust that you're going to give me what I need tomorrow. Now, this is obviously not all that could be said about the Sabbath. There's a lot more that we could say. But one more thing I want to point out to you before we move on. I want to draw your attention to the wording of this command to rest. Six times in chapter 23, God says that the Israelites must not do any, quote, ordinary work. You can look at it in verse verse 7. Verse 7. 
On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now this is a phrase that's repeated all throughout the rest of the chapter. What does that mean, ordinary work? Why does there have to be a modifier there? Why can't it just be work? Well, I think it means that there's a kind of work that you do that doesn't actually qualify as work, but rather it qualifies as rest. Think about a Thanksgiving dinner, for example. Okay? It's a lot of work. You have to get up early, get the turkey going, peel the potatoes, start the yams, I don't know, whatever people do who make Thanksgiving dinner. It's just, it's, it's a lot of work for a very special day. But it's not ordinary work. It's not the work that you do on a daily basis. It's holy work. And I don't mean it's holy work like Thanksgiving is a religious holiday. I mean, remember, holy just means something that's set apart for a special purpose, right? And so for the moms and the grandmas who got the kids and the grandkids coming over, this is a holy day. It's a special day. And so the work that you do there isn't ordinary work. It's holy work. Now take that and think for a second about how much work it would have taken the Israelites to carry off all these feasts. The whole nation was supposed to celebrate them. So if you just take the Feast of Booths, for example, the big end-of-the-year blowout, 192 animals had to be sacrificed over eight days. And you remember from earlier in our time in the book of Leviticus, it's not just the priest who's inspecting the animal, killing the animal, gutting the animal, burning the things, cleaning up, taking the stuff outside of the camp. No, all the people of the congregation were involved in this. Think about how much work that would have been. And that's, that's just one aspect of these feasts. The fact of the matter is, is that any holy day, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Booths, is going to involve a lot of work. It's a lot of work that you have to do so that you can rest. Just think about the Feast of Booths, living in tents for seven days. Right, how much work? Moms, getting Christmas decorations out from the attic here soon. You know, you hate that. Get the ladder out, pull down the thing, go up, climbing, get it out, detangle the lights. You know, imagine living in a tent in your backyard for seven days, how, how that would be. The, the point here is that God is not forbidding all work during these Sabbath times. You know, Jesus talked about this not ordinary work in his own ministry. You remember when some religious leaders attacked Jesus. They said, oh, we see your disciples. They're out there doing stuff they're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds like this. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Now, this, this would be a labor of mercy that Jesus is referring to. But it's real work. Imagine pulling an ox out of a well, okay? That's, that's strenuous labor. But Jesus says that it's not the kind of labor that violates the Sabbath. And there's all kinds of different work that you can do that doesn't violate the Sabbath. There's hospitality work. There's mercy work. There's gathering and serving in the church. And friends, this is one of the reasons why it drives me crazy when I hear about churches doing things like canceling services for the last two weeks of the year because they need to give their volunteers rest. No, that's not the way this works. Service in the church is a form of rest. It is a holy work, a holy service unto God. 
Whether you're doing the slides or playing the piano and singing or preaching or reading scripture, all serving in gospel kids, I'm not saying it's not work. It is work. But it's not the kind of work that needs to be rested from. It's the kind of work that is rest. I think that's a category that God gives us. I think we can say this is a foretaste of the non-ordinary work that we'll be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. It makes perfect sense that if we had work before the fall, that when God comes back and restores everything and makes it new, that there will be work after the fall. And it will be work. But I don't think it's going to be work in the ordinary sense. And brothers and sisters, I think whenever we work and, and labor for the sake of the gospel, we're getting a foretaste of what that work will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And if a church has built itself up in such a way that it has to give its people rest and they feel like they have to cancel the worship of God's holy name for two weeks, then maybe they just need to think about doing church a little different. Now, I often say that being an adult means that you have to take a vacation from your work so that you can do all the other work that you've been putting off, right? I think that's, I think that's about right, and I think that when our work is for the Lord, it's, it's really good to be really busy. I think about my brother Grant Miller and the way he's just constantly running just right up to the red line. Uh, I want to be careful. I don't want to burn him out for the sake of this church and for his family and for his own soul. But I look at him as an elder and as a leader in his family and a leader in the community, and I think that's good. We, of course, have to make sure that we're not so busy that we forget our family. We have to make sure that we don't let our work become our God, especially in the church. And we have to not be so busy with serving the Lord that we forget to worship him like Mary and Martha. But the rhythm of the life of God's people must include labor in the gospel. And that usually happens in the life of the local church. Point number three, worship. Are you guys still with me? Are we hanging in there? It's been quite a morning. Hey, praise God we have babies in this church, amen? amen? I love it. I love it. All right, point number three, worship. Uh, there were many aspects of worship built into these feasts. Obviously, the feasting itself was an act of worship. We talked about that. But there were also other aspects. The offerings and the sacrifices, those were acts of worship. We talked about that in chapters 1 through 5 at length. So if you want to know more about the sacrifices, go back and listen to that sermon. But then another aspect is remembrance. Remembrance. So the Sabbath, for example, was supposed to do all kinds of things like help you trust in the Lord and give you rest. But it was also supposed to be a time to remember, right? That the Lord created for six days and on the seventh day he rested. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, like we already talked about, was a time of remembrance. Just listen to the way that Moses talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 13. He says, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, right? You're eating of this unleavened bread. It's supposed to be a time of memory. It's supposed to jog the memory of God's people. Uh, one pastor has said it like this. Meals bring back memories. Living in America, Indian food reminded me of my mom's cooking back home in India. Living in the Middle East, hamburgers reminded me of America. And then he goes on to talk about how this all connects to the Lord's Supper. And he says, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives us a meal 
to evoke memory, to remember what he has done for us in shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. So friends, this eating to remember God's grace is not something that's particular or unique to the people of the Old Testament. Christ, our ultimate bread, our final form of sustenance, has come to us, and he's given his body, and he's shed his blood, and he's calling us to feast on him for life and sustenance. And every time that we as a church partake in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what he has done in love. Uh, Gathering. Gathering is another aspect of their worship. Look at verse 2 with me. Look at verse 2. It says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. And then if you go down to verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 7 and verse 21, you'll see that phrase over and over and over again. Holy convocation. What does convocation mean? Well, it's just a fancy word that means a formal gathering. And holy in front of it means that it's a formal gathering for a very special purpose. And the purpose is worship. Okay? So what we see here is that God has designed for his people to come together as a people in one place at one time to worship, one, to worship the Lord. Now, it's true that there were other kinds of worship in the Old Testament. There's individual worship and family worship. You can see that in Deuteronomy 6 where you get the, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and all of that jazz, okay? It's, it's good to worship in the home. But this atomized worship, this individual worship, as good as it was, it was not the fullness of worship that God had designed for his people. The fullness of worship for God's people, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is when all of God's people who are separate come together as one. We saw that already earlier in the book of Leviticus, chapter 8, verse 3, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And it wasn't just for feasts that the congregation would assemble en masse. Deuteronomy 31.12 says this. Assemble the people. Ah, well, he's talking about just the men, right? Heads of the household, patriarchal society. That's how that worked. Assemble the people. Men, women, little children, and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the works of of this law. Men, women, children. Sounds very much like Ephesians where Paul is like, husbands and wives, little children. He expects everyone in the family to be present in, in, in the worship of God's holy name. So you see, friends, it's not just feasting. It's also instruction in many other things that God has given his people for worship that can't be done in little pockets, little groups, or as individuals. You have to come together. In the New Testament, Jesus promises that he will be present with his people, not as individuals, but only when they come together as a body. Matthew 18. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among them. Now, he doesn't mean, you know, Dom and Tim working out in the garage. Together in my name means they're covenanted together. This is what we call a church. Two, three, 42, doesn't matter, 52, 102. That's where Jesus' authority is present. You see this in 1 Corinthians 5 when they're dealing with sexual sin. The Apostle Paul says, when you are assembled... That's what the word church means. When you church up, if you will, and the, in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with you, then you can carry out church discipline. Grant and Charles and Mary can't get together and carry out church discipline. They don't have the authority to do that because the authority that Jesus has promised the church only comes to us when we are gathered together as the church. There are so many things that we cannot do as a small group or in our family worship or watching or listening to a sermon from home. I was watching the NBA this week. As you guys know, I'm prone to do. I love it. I love, I love basket, basketball sports. And um, I noticed that in light of the coronavirus, they just had a court with screens set up all around the court, right? And on the screens, there were these projections of these avatars of people who were watching at home. I even saw Lil Wayne on one. I thought, oh, I wonder how much he paid to get right there. And, and they're obviously, you know, they're watching through their computer, and they got a camera, and that's projecting their avatar, and then there's several hundred avatars all around them. And, you know, uh, when somebody shoots a, a ball in a hole, everybody celebrates, ah! And then when the other team shoots the ball in the wrong hole, everybody, boo, right? Am I doing this? This is how it goes at basketball games? And I think if you were to ask those people, hey, what was that experience like, sitting at home in your underwear, watching the game, having your picture, uh, you know, zapped into a screen at the basketball game? Is that, is that the same thing as being there? No. You know? What would they say? They'd say, no. There's, there's just something about being present at a game that you can't get from watching it at home. I just want to say, of course. God knows that. That's why he designed the church to operate the way, the way that it does. There's just something that happens when we're all here together in the same room that cannot happen when you're watching a sermon and you're watching a sermon and you're watching a sermon all in different places. Even if you sing all the songs and pray all the prayers and really pay attention to the sermon, it's not the same thing. During the earlier days of the coronavirus, I saw a lot of Christians taking to social media to remind people that you can still worship God from home. The doors of the church are closed, they would say, but the prayer closet isn't. You don't have to be in the building to be the church. And, and to that, I would say, yeah, in a sense, you're right. Uh, and, and for a time, there may be a reason, especially during a pandemic that, at least in the beginning, we don't know much about and we're not sure how safe it is and all those other things. There may be a time where you and your family are called to worship the Lord individually, at home, not gathered. But friends, there are just so many aspects of Christian worship that we can't do at home or in a small group. That's not how God has designed the body to function. You know, we already live in this age where Christians devalue the gathering of the body. 
the metaphor that I use all the time is they think that they just live in a, a tube that goes from them and is vacuum sealed up to God in heaven. And they think, you know, as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm, I'm good with God. They don't ever think about the one another's of Scripture, the many one another's of Scripture. Then you have just a number of Christians who don't really have any strong convictions either way about the gathering. You know, they just, they don't see the theology of it. They don't really care, but they probably go to church because, hey, that's where their social group is, or that's where their parents are, and, or maybe they've just been doing it their whole life, or they don't have anything else to do on a Sunday morning. But since the coronavirus stuff, they have found it increasingly easy to just stay at home on a Sunday, and that has become the new normal for them. And friends, that is not good, and I'm very afraid for many Christians in our land who are just going to accept that, who are just going to accept the new normal of watching church on the internet at home on their couch. The head of the CDC has come out recently. He's gone on a bit of a tour, media interviews, articles, testifying before Congress, all of this to tell people, to tell everyone in our country that it is essential that kids get back to school. That is the head of the CDC's main message right now. That is his main priority. You have to get kids back in school. His main argument is that the risk of the coronavirus, the, the coronavirus risk is so low and the risk of them not going back to school is so high that they have to get back to school. And it's not just the CDC that's saying that. It's also other people like the American Academy of Pediatrics. Well, friends, I think, I think it's time that we say the same thing about the church. I think we know enough now. We can, be precaution, we can take precautions. I think it's time that we say, friends, we have to figure out a way to get back to gathering with the body. Now, when I say that, I'm trying to leave open a thousand doors for different good reasons why people may not come home. You know, if Miss Janice comes to me tomorrow and says, you know, I've wanted to be here, nobody's forced me to be here, but I'm not comfortable being here because the numbers are on the rise, I would say, oh, that's totally fine, Miss Janice, you know. If there's someone else who's got going through chemo, I would say, okay, that's totally fine, I get it, I understand. If your conscience is differently informed than me, on this matter, and you're, you're a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, I think there's room for Christians to disagree. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to push, and I'm not going to try to keep my thumb on you just a little bit so that you don't get comfortable and make that the new normal. In closing, I think it's fair to say that God cares about the rhythm of our lives. We are not the old covenant people of Israel, but that doesn't mean that our lives don't have a unique rhythm. Think about the things that dictate the rhythm of your life here in America, right? You got weekends, living for the weekend. You got vacations. You got birthdays, anniversaries. You have public holidays. You know, Memorial Day, it's all about barbecuing and swimming and Christmas breaks, spring breaks. Those mean different things to different people you know, moms versus uh, college kids. President's Day, National Pancake Day, New Year's Eve, all that good stuff. But many American Christians, they move to the rhythm of holy days as well. Their churches celebrate things like Good Friday and Easter and Advent and Christmas and so on. 
And as a member of this church, you've probably noticed that we don't move to that rhythm. You're never going to have an Easter service in this church. You're never going to have a Christmas service or a Good Friday service. We're never going to light candles for Advent, at least as long as I'm the pastor. And maybe you've wondered why. Let me tell you why. It's because there is no liturgical calendar in the New Testament. There is only the Lord's Day. Now, I'm not speaking to what you may choose to do in your own homes with your family as good traditions that you like to celebrate. That's certainly fine. I think that that's uh, even a good thing in many ways. But in the church, we do not celebrate these days because there is no liturgical calendar. In the Old Testament, there very clearly is a liturgical calendar. You, my people, will celebrate these holy days for this reason and that reason and this reason and that reason. And in the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, those days have passed away. And there are no more liturgical days for the people of God. You don't see a replacement except the one replacement, which is the Lord's Day. And if you want to go back and look, I'll give you a couple of scripture references. Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. What you find in the New Testament is that our rhythm is a weekly rhythm. And it's not from Saturday to Saturday, the seventh day to the seventh day. Now it's Sunday to Sunday, the first day of the week to the first day of the week, the first day of the new creation. But friends, you should know that even that rhythm will one day come to an end. The prophet Isaiah talked about the day when Jesus would finally come back and take us home. And he says this, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Brothers and sisters, one day we will all move into an eternal rhythm. And I don't know what's going to dictate the pace of our lives in the new heavens and the new earth. If the sun isn't shining and the moon isn't glowing, and if that's not how we punctuate our experience of time, I don't know what it will be, but I know that it will be glorious for those who know the Lord. But I'm very much afraid of what it will be for those who do not know the Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know God, I want you to consider your eternity. If you haven't trusted in Christ for your salvation and you're just going through this lifestyle, this rhythm of suffering and pain and sorrow and hopelessness, and it feels like every time the sun goes down, your life gets darker, and every time it rises up, it's just another day of dread. If that's your experience of life in this fallen world, I want you to know that it does not have to be that way. You can turn to Christ. You can receive his love and his joy and his peace. And you can have a holy rhythm of love and joy and peace in this life. And then when you close your eyes, you will only know love and joy and peace forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for communicating with us. Thank you for being a God who is not silent. Father, we pray that you would help us to have a holy rhythm to our lives. Help us to love you more. Amen.